Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Visit, we talk about ways to capture, clean and better use water. Now, water is incredibly important for all forms of life, but sometimes we can have too little or too much, simultaneously even in the case of climate change. And we need to find a way to treat our water better in wastewater processes to make sure we're not damaging the environment and find a way to deal with all that really high salinity water to avoid problems in the environment in the future. One of the scary realities of climate change is that sometimes we can get inundated with huge amounts of water from floods and from cyclones and hurricanes. But at other times, we can be without water at critical amounts. Huge droughts that can devastate economies and leave cities without water. The problem is that both of these things can happen in the same area almost nearly at the same time. Incredibly intense droughts and incredibly intense storms and floods can happen back to back. And that is one of the realities that faces both Australia and everywhere across the world, but in particular the region of Texas. Now, in 2017, Hurricane Harvey bellowed into Texas, causing huge amounts of flooding because a lot of that area of Texas is relatively flat and it opens onto the Gulf of Mexico. And hurricanes that form in the Gulf of Mexico can make their way in, bringing with them huge storm surges as well as a lot of rain. Now, the combination of those two factors floods the aquifers and swamps that many cities like Houston in Texas are built on. And the result of that is, well, large amounts of floodings that puts people's lives in danger, destroys infrastructure and levels, to want a bit of word, a city. But the other challenge is that places like Texas also can go into deep droughts where all of those farms have to draw more and more heavily on the aquifer the water trapped underneath the ground, just to survive and get through the season. So some new research from the University of Texas at Austin was published in the journal Environmental Research Letters. And they were investigating just how much water falls in these dramatic rainfall events and what could be done with it. Would there be some way to even out the score here when you have too much water, capture it and do something with it when you're facing a critical shortage? And that's pretty much the idea that they've investigated here and published a paper on. This research was led by Qin Yang, a research associate at UT Austin's Bureau of Economic Geology. As they state, we either have too much water or we don't have enough water. And so what can we do to manage the water sources during these extremes? Now, obviously, the idea would be to use the naturally occurring large underground aquifers which exist in a lot of the areas of Texas. Now, that's because of the ground conditions, and basically these large sources of water are trapped underneath the ground. Now, they're tapped at the moment for use, not only for farming, but also for residential water supplies as well. But it depletes large amounts of the aquifers, leaving hollow areas that are empty. The concept is to capture some rainwater and pump it back underground to top up the aquifer. And actually, this is already done in Texas cities like El Paso, Careville, and San Antonio. But to try and stop a massive flood and put it all underground is incredibly complicated and requires a huge investment in infrastructure and planning, which is outlined by one of the senior researchers and study authors, Bridget Scanlon. The first step in the study, she states, is to look at whether the water is worth going after. 
Before the research, we didn't know how much water there was or whether it would be worth investing in. And that's a good question because it takes a lot of money to build massive amounts of pumps and drainage systems to capture all that water. But the good news is that along the Texas Gulf Coast, there's a lot of these aquifers underneath the ground and they've been drowned by so much, there's left so much space that you could store about 20 million acre feet of water, which is the exact volume is one of the largest reservoirs in the United States, Lake Mead. It's enough space to store about two-thirds of the water that flow through Texas' 10 major rivers during the flooding seasons between 2015 and 2017. That's a crazy amount of water to think about. Now, the good news about this study is it shows that there's actually enough water in these flooding years, like 2015, 16, and 17, which were analysed. Though there were particularly wet and rainy years, they found that there was pretty much a regular occurrence over a 10-year period of one of the rivers flooding out of the 10 major ones. And most of the events actually occur for a week or longer, which is actually good news because the longer a flooding or high-flow event goes for, the better chance you are of actually capturing it. Thinking of it another way, trying to capture a storm in a teacup or a big torrent of water in a small cup is quite difficult, but working your way through it over an hour, you can actually empty a large bath with just a teacup. That's the way I'd love to think about it. So tapping off these rivers during high-flow events would give you a way to top up the aquifers without having to invest and try and capture the huge deluge of a hurricane. The other good news is the researchers found through environmental studies that 65% of these real high flows could be actually harnessed and captured, particularly in the San Antonio and Brazos rivers. But when they do that, you wouldn't actually take so much water that you'd harm the environment. And that's good news because, yes, you can capture water from rivers, but as we found out here in Australia more recently, even though you can dam or take some water, you still need to leave enough environmental flow to keep the river healthy. Otherwise, you can have things like fish kills, as we've seen in the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia, but also leaving the rest of the river high and dry, leading to algal blooms. So this is some interesting research out of the University of Texas, Austin, to show that it is feasible from both an environmental and an economic sense, and even a technical sense, to try and harness and capture all this excess flooding water from a particular area like the Texas region, which has large aquifers that could be the reservoir house to dump that water back into. And it's a nice way of closing up that system and topping up the water supply. But it's going to take innovative ideas like that to better manage our infrastructure and our environment to try and make up for the impact we're causing with climate change. This is some great work published in the journal Environmental Research Letters led by Chin Young and Bridget Scanlon from the University of Texas. interesting things about water supply networks is that what gets washed down the drain is incredibly fascinating because chances are things that end up down the drain either in our toilets or down our sink can carry with it and last for a very long time in fact scientists and public policymakers actually very often use testing of the water supplies and the outputs of the sewage network to determine population health to look at well, whether or not what drug use is in the city, because they can see all of this by tracing certain chemical leftovers inside the network. 
For example, medications can be excreted in the urine and then obviously go through the sewage network and be washed off. But if you have a shower and you're covered in cosmetics or lotions, they'll get washed down the sink or the drain just the same. Now the problem is a lot of our wastewater networks aren't actually designed to treat the water for that. They're mostly designed to treat it for biological contaminants and turn that sewage into either recycled water or a water safe for discharge to environmental standards. And that means pharmaceuticals and personal care products such as P, otherwise known as PPCPs can end up staying behind in the water wastewater stream. And as living standards rise across the world, PPCP usage increases. And that means you see more and more of these substances getting left in surface water and groundwater. And that's because they run through the conventional treatment processes and get discharged out into the environment. But that's a problem because then that water enters the water cycle. And once it's in the water cycle, it can end up at rivers and streams and thus also into the tissues of fish and other vegetables that get treated or coated with that water now okay that's an issue but what can we do about it well the reason that we actually care is that some ppcps are endocrine disruptors which could otherwise negatively affect human health and environment so you need something that could actually absorb these materials and scientists have shown that a material type they call porous aromatic frameworks or pafs can actually remove pollutants from the water. But PAFs are in powder form and they don't dissolve in most solvents, which makes them really difficult to both handle and then clean up the mess after you've used them. So they're not exactly the most ideal format. And in a recent journal paper published in the ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces, led by a researcher Gang Zhu and colleagues from Northeast Normal University, have been trying to figure out a way to turn these PAFs, these porous aromatic framework materials into something like an absorbent material that they could use to soak up PPCPs by taking this new spun fiber membrane made of PAFs and exposing it to the PPCP, coating all the fibers on the membranes, and then you've captured all of the PPCP runoff, all the chemical runoff, and you have it all kept in a nice, easily handleable way. So to do this, they actually spun, like you would a loom, a polymer called polyacrylic nitrile into a, a basically a big fibrous membrane. They actually then coated it with polyaniline to help capture and snag all these PAFs to the surface. So they made this membrane base, and then they added the PAF, PAF45 to be specific, to coat all of the fibers. And this makes a pretty powerful and absorbent framework more like a giant sponge, to want a better word, that really absorbed some of the most common PPCPs, including ibuprofen, colexanol, and diethylmetatulamide, otherwise known as DEET. Now, some of those chemical names you may have heard of before, ibuprofen obviously being a pain medication. And they actually were incredibly successful because this new membrane material coated in PAF45 had a higher suction capacity up than any of the other available PAF solutions currently on the market. And the best news is that the membrane is actually easily recyclable. All you have to do is douse the membrane with some ethanol. It flushes off all the PPCP, which you can capture safely and dispose of. And then the membrane can be used again and again and again with only a slight decrease in capacity. And this is the kind of groundbreaking thinking we need to actually 
apply to improve our infrastructure because sometimes just going well we clean the water to make it environmentally safe to current regulations is not enough we need to think about the way that regulations and people's chemical or drug use have changed over time which can have flow-on effects to our environment so this is some great work published in the journal acs applied materials interfaces If you're running out of water like Australia was facing between the 2006 and 2009 region, what Australia referred to as the Millennium Drought, most of the major cities across Australia built desalination plants. Now, you can argue the political merits of all of that, for want of a better word, but same in California when they were in their large drought. The desalination plants provided the governments and the water authorities with a get-out-of-jail card. If the drought didn't break and the water ran out, at least they would have something that they could use to make water. And that's what desalination plants do, used in places like Singapore and Israel, places that have a lot of seawater around them, but not a lot of clean drinking water available. So what they do is, well, they treat it in one of the two major main processes and turn that salty seawater into fresh drinking water. And that's either done normally through two methods. Uh, membrane reverse osmosis is one of the first ones. So basically you filter it through a series of membranes to get out all the, the seawater from it and just leave the fresh, normal, pure H2O without all the salt content. Uh, but reverse osmosis is particularly expensive and complicated to do. The other method, water evaporation, is pretty straightforward. It's referred to as distillation in the industry. Now, the good news about distillation is it's relatively easy and straightforward to do. The bad news is that it's incredibly energy intensive. And so therefore, you're burning a lot of energy just to get clean drinking water. And that's really the major problem with desalinization. Nothing comes for free. You need some way of processing and handling that water. And well, you can either make expensive and complicated filters that need to be maintained, or you can use a lot of heat to try and heat up the water to evaporate it. Neither of those solutions, though, work for a certain type of water, referred to as hypersaline brines. Now, hypersaline brines are water that contains incredibly high concentration of dissolved salts. And these are basically brines or groups of salty water that have substantially more time salt in it than the ocean. And this is a real serious environmental topic for a number of reasons. Um, first off is anything to do with fracking. So the process of fracking, natural gas extraction, um, uses water to pump down to break and frack the, the rock and to push out in a high-pressure jet all the oil or gas. And that's great, but the leftover byproduct of that is really, really salty water, this hypersilone brines. That's one way they're produced. Another is actually from landfill. So landfill leaches out basically all the water and the groundwater from the area leaches out with all the dissolved things inside of it, including, more often than not, a lot of salty content. Another problem is, of course, any of the power plants, like a coal power plant has waste sulfurized or flue gas that needs to be treated, uh, and even just from industrial processes. So industrial and power and landfill and mining all produce these hypersaline brines which need to be managed in some way. If you just dump them into a lake, they're going to pollute both the surface and the groundwater. If you just store them in a big reservoir, there's a chance they could leach out into the groundwater, causing even more damage by getting into an aquifer. So you need some way to make that brine, the super saline brine, into something that could be usable. 
Because if you manage somehow to convert that into, it doesn't need to necessarily be drinking water, but at least recycled water in some way, it could be perfectly acceptable for agriculture or industrial applications. And if you game, like in Singapore, where they rely on new water, you could even get it treated to the level to be acceptable for human consumption. So that's the goal. But how do we get there? Well, the problem is to try and treat this super saline brine with uh, traditional methods, it doesn't work. The first is that membrane methods, reverse osmosis, basically relies on some, some pressure curves. And if you have a high salt content, then the pressure you need to reach is in stupidly high. It just becomes enormously difficult to even get water up to that pressure. So that doesn't work. So then what else could you do? Well, reverse osmosis is out, but water evaporation, distillation is still in. The problem is you now need to burn stupid amounts of energy to try and do it because the salt actually ramps up the boiling temperature. So the more salt, the higher the boiling point. So basically, neither way at the moment is good. This is where researchers from Columbia Engineering step in, led by Nagai Yin Yip, an assistant professor of earth and environmental engineering. And as they outline in their paper published in the Environmental Science and Technology Letters, they come up with a new process called Temperature Swing Solvent Extraction, TSSE. Now, this method can handle very, very high salinity brines, up to seven times the concentration of seawater. And it does it by using a solvent-based process. Uh, a solvent-based process is really extensively used as a typical chemical engineering process for industrial applications or for mining or to purification of natural products, extraction of valuable metal compounds, even refinement of fine organic compounds. So using solvents is actually pretty easy, efficient, and scalable, provided that you can actually sustainably power it. Now, the process they've developed actually uses a pretty low polarity solvent, which is temperature dependent, but the temperature it needs is what's classified as low-grade heat less than 70 degrees Celsius. And that's actually pretty exciting because that's very achievable with technology like solar or other renewable energy sources, which means you could actually power this desalinization method using renewable energy, a solar panel, low shallow well geothermal, or even just industrial waste heat collection. So let's say you're an industrial plant spewing out all this hypersaline brine. You could just tack on one of these processes on the side, it just harvests the leftover exhausted heat from the process and treats the water at the same time. But more importantly, it actually can handle these hypersaline brines that the other method just can't do. And this would be particularly transformational for the water industry, as Ian states. It can displace the prevailing practice of costly distillation for dis desalinization. And actually, it can actually tackle even higher salinities if you refine the process. But it's a really important not only for industrial applications, but also for landfill water treatment. It actually gives us a real alternative now to something that is often just ignored. Now, because this technology is relatively scalable as well, you just need to produce enough of the solvent, which is actually a relatively straightforward chemical process. It's a standard typical chemical engineering practication. Plus, the infrastructure required is not actually that intensive. You don't need to build a monster massive complicated plant like you do for reverse osmosis. So this is some really interesting work out of Columbia University School of Engineering and Applied Science that shows the quick thinking and innovative technologies we need to take to clean up our act in the planet and make more water available rather than just saying, oh, it's too hard and discharging it. 
This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From cleaning our wastewater from the residential process and also the industrial level, we also found out about ways to better capture and use water from floods to help stave off droughts. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.